You're listening to Mental Work. I'm your host, Bronwyn, an early career psychologist based in Australia. And this is the podcast taking a closer look at the challenges faced by early career mental health professionals so they don't have to go it alone. Hey listeners, welcome back to Mental Work. And Happy New Year. This is recorded on the 1st of January, 2022. Wow. This is a solo episode with me, Bronwyn, and today I'll be taking you by the hand on a journey through the pitfalls and successes of starting out in private practice. I started my own solo private practice in January 2021, and it has been the source of so many ups and downs, successes and challenges. You know, it's probably also a source of curiosity or joy or frustration to you too, Because according to the latest report on mental health services in Australia, roughly one in three mental health practitioners work either in group or solo private practice as, say, opposed to hospitals or community organisations. So if you're already in solo private practice, the episode will be highly relatable for you, hopefully. And as I said, if you're in group private practice, you'll be able to see what it's like from the solo side of things. And if you're working in a completely different setting and the thought of private practice terrifies you, this episode will probably validate your fears, but also provide a ray of hope that you can certainly dip your toes in the water and be okay. I, I've survived. I'm, I'm still here. So the angle I want to come at for this episode is really taking you on a candid journey. I really want to just do some of the highlights because with these highlights and challenges and insights, I can do whole episodes on them. So I really just want to condense everything down, give you the major takeaways, the major practical tips, and some really key, juicy, meaty information that will be of benefit to you. I'm also interested in doing this because when I first started, I couldn't find any audio, including podcasts of someone who was in my position, you know, wanting to start out in solo private practice. All the things that I could find were coming from folks who had already started their practice a bajillion years ago. And while most of it was still relevant, it often didn't take into account this, and I hate saying this, this unprecedented landscape that private practice is currently in for newbies, especially in Australia. There's so much to take you through on this episode, so I've just decided I will start from the start and go from a start, middle, and end. I think the most appropriate place to start is, if you picture this in your minds, of me lying down on my couch at home and having the serious thought, I don't think I can do this. I had this thought when I had read a bit about solo private practice and I'd taken a few steps. So I'd found a private practice management software. I'd thought about the types of clients that I wanted to see. And then I got to the financial side of things and I thought, can I actually do this? Is this a stupid decision? Like seriously, like I know I'm competent. I know I can do things, but is this going to be a financial decision that actually isn't good for me? And I actually had to contemplate that for a few days, maybe a week, had lots of discussions with my partner and eventually came to the decision that, okay, I think I'm going to do this. And then if I don't like it after a year, I can pack it all in. So I gave myself that out. I was like, this is not forever. I'm not signing a contract to somebody to be like, yes, I would do this forever. It's really just, okay, I'll give it a go and take it step by step. And really, that was that was the start of the private practice. So what did I do in those first few stages? I read about everything I could on 
private practice. I read books and I will link you to the books that I read in the show notes. One of my favorite books was written by Kay Francom and that is Fit for Practice. It's an Australian book and it provides lots of wonderful insights and tips into private practice. What I did was I literally read this book and every time that I saw something that I needed to do, like set up a policy, write a communication template, I would do that and then go on to the next thing. I think it took me about a week to get through the meaty parts. And in addition to reading Kay's book, I also did a small business course, but actually that came too late. So when I did the small business course, I realized that I had already figured out some of this business stuff and actually left after lunch. Yeah, I know that sounds bad. It was a whole day thing, but I was just like, okay, I'm actually not getting anything out. They're talking about ABNs and I'm like, yep, I already got that. But it was a good check-in to actually make sure that I had everything. I also spoke with numerous people. So I called what's called the Small Business Development Corporation. You'll have your own small business organization in your state, um, probably in your country, and they can usually provide free information and assistance to small business owners. And that's what I did. So I called someone up. They were really generous with their information. And in hindsight, they're really generous because I was starting with such a simple business structure. I was literally starting with Soul Trader. That's pretty much the simplest thing you can do. But again, I had no idea what I was doing. So it was really nice to have their reassurances. One of the major things I did, and yes, I'll admit this, was I rigorously went through the Facebook posts on a big um, private practice peer support group. That's a lot of plosives for the audio. Uh, Plosives is where you say lots of P's and B's in a row. And what I did was I rigorously went through those posts and I picked out anything that anybody had said. So any threads that were like, I wish I had known this started out in private practice. I was all over that. I was up in that jam. And I was like, oh, yes, I'm doing this. And I was like, ha, 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 I won't do that. And so I went through those posts. I added everything into a document. So I set up a few documents to start off with. One was like a policy document. The other one was infrastructure. So infrastructure is, when I refer to infrastructure, it's literally all the IT and electronic stuff that you need to actually set up your practice, which is heaps. And there's so much to choose from. So decision fatigue was a major uh, challenge that I experienced setting up because I say that when I chose my private practice management software, like it was a breeze, like it was something really easy. But in reality, it's like I was going between five or six different private practice management softwares and choosing the right one for me. Other decisions, there are about 500 of them. It was like, how am I going to get people to pay? How am I going to book clients? How am I going to attract clients? What is my policy on cancellations? Yes, that was a big thing. Uh, How much am I going to charge? What are my finances like? And I think all of these things, they took immeasurable cognitive load and decision-making. I didn't anticipate these things when I was first going into setting this up. And it took me about three months. So what happened is that I finished up my job in a government-funded organization in December, and then I started my practice in late January. So it was about two months. I spent a week probably trying to learn my private practice management software, and that was reading the help articles and getting very frustrated with them, but learning it pretty okay. Like once I stuck with it, I was like, okay, I'm getting this. Things become easier as you go along. But I think if you're in group private practice, one of the things that you might not realize is how involved it all is. 
So there's this lovely story that was told by a philosopher at a graduation ceremony for arts undergrads in 2005, and it goes like this. There are two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks at the other and goes, what the hell is water? And I really like that story because I think it relates strongly to private practice, actually, because like the fish who are in water all the time and they don't realize what water is, I think when you're in group private practice, you see clients all day and you actually don't realize the infrastructure and processes and systems that are going on around you to support you. So then when you get out of that group private practice and you get into solo private practice, you are completely thrown in the deep end. You have no idea what any of this is. And so I'm really grateful for the books that I read. I think I read about three or four before I actually started. And again, I'll link to those other ones in the show notes. So that big jumble was the start. I gave myself a little, I made a little deal of myself. I was like, okay, I can book clients when I know how to just get a session done. So going from the point of booking the client in my private practice management software seeing the client, and then processing payment. I was like, when I know how to do those things, okay, I think I'm ready. And that was the point that I then did book my first clients because I already had clients from my previous organization contacting me and actually said to them, whoa, 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 give me some time. Didn't realize that setting up a small business would take so much time. And when I was ready, I met that minimum criteria, I booked them in. On my first day of private practice, I had five clients. Four were from my previous organization and one was a complete newbie. So I was really excited. I, was, I remember them booking and I was like, wow, somebody's booked, somebody found me. Because what I did was I set up a profile on Psychology Today, which by the way, has been a fantastic source of referrals. I would highly recommend it. The first six months are free and you can actually get that extended if you have somebody else who's already a member to give you a code and then you can get a further six months free. Eventually, I took down my Psychology Today profile because I got too many referrals from there. So you can see how successful it is. Also, pro tip for Psychology Today, make sure you do a video. I literally had clients who called me and were like, I saw your video on Psychology Today and you can speak well. And I was like, hmm, I didn't know that that was a selling point for psychologists, but great. And even before <laughs> seeing the first clients, a huge challenge for me was finding space. So as a solo practitioner, you probably don't want to be taking out a commercial lease in your first year. That means that you probably want to be renting a room from somebody else who already has their practice. There are a few models and renting a room is one of them. The reason why I say you probably don't want to take out a commercial lease in your first year is because you really are finding your feet. Unless you know exactly who you want to see and where you want to be located, then renting a room is probably your best option. Make sure that you scout out a few so that you're not paying an exorbitant price. I remember the first one I was offered and that was well above what I eventually settled on. And I didn't realize that that was more expensive. I was like, oh, okay. I don't know how I make much money there if I'm paying that price. Um, but once I actually went and saw other rooms and got different prices, I realized how good it could actually be. So make sure that you do your research. And if you can, ideally make sure you have enough space. 
Because the key challenge for me was actually expanding. Yep. So once I outgrew the original space that I found and I couldn't, there was no wiggle room to actually see more clients in that room that I originally got in because it was already shared with five other psychologists. What I had to do was quickly find another space. And what I'd been told was that the person who's in the room next to the room I was renting was going to be working from home soon and then they would have heaps more space in their room. I took their word for it and I ended up sharing with a massage therapist. Yep, there was a massage bed in there and everything. It's a really good icebreaker joke with new clients. Like they were all like, ha, 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 do I have to lie on the bed? And I was like, ha, 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 only if you want to, um, but you will not be forced, of course. But eventually... <laughs> Eventually, the excuses kind of wore out because I kept on telling them, no, the owner's going to um, work from home soon. But he kind of never did that and it turned out kind of bad. So make sure you can, if you can, find enough space. One of the first major challenges that I came up against was knowing what to do in crisis situations. So in about the first month of my solo private practice, I had two patients who went into hospital and I had no idea what to do. It was really good that I already had these support systems in place. So I had a Facebook group who I could ask. I also had another psychologist who was happy for me to send her text messages and then she would reply quite quickly. I also had a peer support group. So we met every fortnight and it was really good being able to draw on all of these resources I also had my professional society who I could contact for information and advice. All of these things were really helpful for those moments where you just have completely surprising situations. I didn't anticipate that both these clients would be in hospital and you just are freaking out on the inside. It didn't turn out to be too bad with those clients in hospital and I think I navigated it okay. Everything felt like in those first few months that I was just scraping by. It was like I was managing not as well as I thought I would, but I was getting by and I was maintaining a professional image to my clients. As I went on, I got more and more clients. I got pretty busy, to be honest. So in Australia, you do not need to worry about getting referrals. I know it's quite different in the US market that you have to have a niche and you have to sell yourself and really have a good marketing strategy. If you have a Psychology Today profile in Australia and you let one doctor know that you are available and you're a new practice, you will get enough referrals. I wouldn't waste your time with anything else. It's a waste of time and energy. Focus on doing good work with your clients. That'll get back to the GP rather than focusing on taking out a Google ad and spending money unnecessarily. When I got too busy, that's when I needed more space. And thankfully, a really good opportunity cropped up for me. And I managed to get a really nice office for rent in another location. This was super lucky. And the way that I actually got this was through a network. So I guess don't underestimate your networks. And they, were, they actually approached me. They were like, there's this small job going. It has a really nice office with it. And I was like, I'm in. That worked out really well. I think the next challenge that I came up again was managing clients past session six. This might seem a bit odd to you, but it was scary territory for me because in my previous service that I'd worked in, it was a short-term service. 
It was run by the government and they provided up to six free sessions for clients. So I was really good at sessions one to six and that probably contributed to my retention rate. I had really good retention this year. I'm really good at those first few sessions. Past session six and I start sweating. This wasn't territory I traveled much and I pretty much had to upskill really dramatically in all areas of therapy, including my treatment plans. If you imagine a treatment plan as like session one to six and I'm like, yep, got it, know everything. And then past session six, it's like question marks filled out. That was pretty much what my treatment plans were like. And it worked with some clients because they did get better in six sessions. Woohoo! But for other clients, they were just hanging around and I was like, what are you doing here? Ha ha ha. Another key thing that I discovered was that clients have really different needs in private practice compared to community mental health. In community mental health, I was seeing actually lots more severely unwell people and that required a lot of case management and it required a lot more kind of practical interventions. So for severely unwell people, you might be helping linking them to services that help with housing and accommodation or protection from violence, or even talking with them about diet, exercise, and getting active and participating in their community. The people I was seeing in private practice, some of them were still severely unwell. Others were more interested in their identity and understanding themselves, understanding their place in their families. They were people who were having trouble with communication with their partners and their family and working out how to cope with multiple roles, such as being a mother and also being working in a very stressful job. And these were areas that, again, I needed to upskill in. And thankfully, because of my basis in counselling skills, I was able to just remind myself that as long as I'm listening and understanding and trying to help that I'm probably doing an okay job. I guess a tip there is to not put too much pressure on yourself. And it's like, I say this, but I was putting heaps of pressure on myself. (laughs) But if you can, if you can try to remember those essential ingredients of therapy, which are just having a positive relationship with the person in front of you and seeing their humanness, having positive regard, listening, understanding. Once I'd gotten past the challenge of session six and beyond, the next thing that approached me was agonizing over increasing my fee. This is a huge area. And yes, I will probably do a whole episode on money because I have heaps of statistics on that. It is. It was hugely, hugely difficult to work out to increase my fee. And I went back and forth and back and forth, even setting my fee in the first place. Originally, I was going to start out with a fee that was super, super low. It was only thankfully that I was like, no, okay, I'll start out with this fee and I managed to get going. In the end, I increased my fee, I think by about $8, which was about 8% of my fee or maybe it was 5%. It was quite a low increase and it was still well below what anybody else was charging in my area. This is, I guess, a very universal theme with money. We don't value ourselves. We don't value the service. We think, why would people pay this money to see me? And consequently, we undercharge. It's probably a huge issue for early career mental health professionals. And it's one that leads to burnout because if you can't support yourself financially, then how are you going to survive? It's one of the key things that I've learned moving forward. And in the new year, I've increased my fee by $20 because of how severely undercharged it was. So I got over that hurdle with much angst and gritting my teeth. 
the next thing that I wanted to do was actually implement my late notice policy. So some of you call the late notice policy a cancellation policy. This is what happens when clients cancel on the day of the appointment or just plain don't show up and you lose a fifth of your salary for the day. It also affects their treatment because then you are not seeing them regularly and you've already prepared for their session. So you've got everything that you need to go through in mind and then they don't show up. So it creates more work for you as well. It also means that the client is not getting the full benefit from therapy. So I had a late notice cancellation policy, but I wasn't implementing it. I remember the first time that somebody cancelled within 24 hours and I was like, that's okay, I won't charge the fee, ha ha ha. And my brain was screaming at me like, what are you doing, woman? Another thing with the cancellation policy is really do what works for your practice. My original cancellation policy was one that worked for a very large group practice, which had about 15 clinicians. And their policy was to let the first time that the client no-shows or cancels within 24 hours go. Don't charge a fee, just value the relationship. And that probably works for them because they have a huge practice and you couldn't absorb those costs. For you as a solo private practitioner, like I said before, that's a fifth of your salary. So you need to recoup those costs and you can't actually wait for it. And I've discovered a way to kind of straddle this in that I give clients a discount, but it's still a charge. So rather than charging the full fee, I actually tell them this is the discounted fee. I'll go through a whole episode on that if you want to as well. Eventually, I was getting the rhythm of doing therapy and I was actually having a good time. Um, it was a really, it was a real joy to be able to see my clients. I felt like I was doing good work. I was trying my best. And sometimes I didn't feel like I was doing good work. See episode on imposter syndrome. That was our first one. And it kind of just feels like a blur in the, the last third of the year. I eventually stopped taking on new clients because I realized that I overbooked clients. So I had too many on my caseload and clients weren't able to see me for three to four weeks. And I was like, oh, this is bad. And again, I had no room to expand. So I just had to stop taking on clients and cut that off. Now, here's when things started to go a bit pear-shaped in that around September, that's when I started falling behind on notes. So I would fall behind, catch up on the weekends. I found myself getting tireder and tireder. In October, I was feeling really tired. And then by the time I got to November, I was burnt out. I was operating at half capacity and I knew it was really bad when clients started noticing that I seemed down or agitated. I think they noticed a bit of anxiety in my voice and my demeanor. And I was like, this is really bad. Clients are noticing it's affecting the way I'm being. I'm not giving them my full self. So I actually had to take a few days of sick leave this was another huge challenge for me. I really hate cancelling. I hate cancelling appointments. I really value being a consistent figure for my clients and I want them to be able to be like Brennan is a predictable person who is consistent and she keeps a commitment. And so for me to cancel appointments when I was feeling burnt out was a huge challenge for me. The way that I dealt with it was I had to be like, I cannot give them a good session. I cannot do good therapy with them if I'm like this. So I kind of framed it as though I was putting them first as well. But it was, it truly was for both our benefit. It was for my benefit and it was for their benefit too. So in December, I really prioritized my well-being. 
and I had some rest and that was really valuable. I was able to go see my own psychologist in December and I talked about everything that I'd worked on during the year and they were like, all by yourself. And I was like, all by myself. Of course, I've got people behind me, but I'm the one in the sessions every day. But again, I don't think I could have done it without my support networks. So that includes all my peers. And of course, my partner, he really helped me out a lot. So it kind of, I think it really does take a village to raise a solo private practitioner. I also had really excellent supervision that was incredibly helpful. I had people who I could call up and be like, I don't know how to do this, please help. And they would always respond. When I had some rest in December, I felt like I started to feel like my old self again. And it allowed me to have some ideas to 2022. I'm still in the rest phase. I still, when I think of going back, I've got another two weeks before I go back and I'm still in the phase where when I think about work, my heart rate increases a little bit. So I think that's telling me that I still need some more rest, need to do some more cooking and drawing and playing guitar. But I think when I do that, then I'll be able to come back really refreshed. One of my key goals with private practice when I started out and I called it Operation Burnout Prevention was to make sure I didn't burn out. And I actually did super well. I remember congratulating myself and I was being like, well done, Bronwyn, you haven't burnt out yet. Kind of all fell apart at the end of the year, but I think I've made a good recovery. So what's next for me for solo private practice is that I am going to add people to my team. So my first priority is really getting a practice assistant. So getting somebody to help me with phone calls and emails and managing referrals. I think this would be the best thing that I do so far. And I should have done it a few months ago, really. So I'm really looking forward to this. All in all, I am really proud of what I have achieved this year. I think to cap it all off was having both of my top GP referrers call me and say that they were really happy with my work and telling me that they've received feedback from all their patients that I've done an excellent job. Another one was hearing from the receptionist and medical practice saying that I've only heard good things about you and I haven't heard anything bad. This is the kind of stuff that really makes me feel good that I am providing a good service to the community. It's also really valuable when I hear it from clients. I hope hearing me talk today has given you some insights into what's what a first year of solo private practice looks like. It might not be typical. It might not be your first year. I hope your first year, if you are thinking of dipping your toes into it, goes well. And I'm going to leave you with some of the top tips and takeaways that I want you to leave with from listening to this episode. Number one, take more time off than you think you'll need. Add an extra week at least to all time off that you schedule and make sure you schedule time in advance. Three days of seeing clients, so about 14 to 16 clients a week, is plenty in your first year. Why do I say this? Because on the other days, you're going to be managing your business. Remember, you're a small business owner and also working with admin and doing reports. If you're in Australia, do not worry about getting referrals. It might be slow at the start, but get a website, get a Psychology Today profile, let two GPs, one to two, know that you are open and it'll be all good. In Australia, we're in a mental health crisis and you pretty much just have to yell, I'm open and you will get referrals. 
So don't waste your time and energy really trying to get your niche down pat and doing Google ads. Just focus on delivering really good service to your clients and making relationships with GPs. So that is doing timely letters as well. Finally, get more support than you think you'll need. If you think you only need supervision once a month, do twice a month. And then if you really don't need it, you can make the decision to cancel it like a week and a half out. Prioritize talking about work with colleagues as well. This is, I guess, kind of to release the emotional burden and have a person on hand to text when you're unsure about something and who you know will quickly respond. Why am I focusing on support? Probably because it's the most important thing in your first year. There are so many unexpected things that came up for me. From people requesting that I do things that I didn't even know that psychologists could do, like doing large group family mediation, to getting a subpoena, to having somebody go to hospital, everything you can think of, I probably experienced in the first year. And every time I thought like that would be the last thing, there was another surprise right around the corner waiting for me. And that is why support is so important. I hope this has been helpful for you and that you can use this just as a bit of an insight. And if you had something similar happen to you this year, then well done you. Be proud of yourself. And do you have any feedback on the episode? Did I miss something you think is really important for listeners to know about? Do you want to be a guest and talk about it with me? Contact me by email at mentalworkpodcast at gmail.com. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening and catch you next time. Thanks for listening to Mental Work, the podcast for early career mental health professionals. If you're loving the show and don't want to miss an episode, press subscribe on your podcast listening app. And if you enjoyed this episode or any of our previous ones, leave us a rating and review on iTunes and Spotify. What topics would you enjoy hearing us talk about on the show? We'd love to hear from you. Email us your suggestions at mentalworkpodcast at gmail.com. Have a good one and see you next time.